Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations provided by the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Anne Dabolarga and I'm a TMC member. For this episode of Clinical Conversations, I have the pleasure to speak again to Drs Mackenzie and Chirwa, who this time will share their experience of the pandemic in Malawi. During our last episode, our guests gave us some important insights into their experience of training and practicing as a doctor in Malawi. Dr. Mackenzie is an infectious disease consultant who trained in Edinburgh, and Dr. Isak Chirwa is a consultant endocrinologist who did medical training um, in the UK. So welcome both again, and thank you very much for your time. You shared some very valuable experience of practicing medicine in Malawi, and we learned about the current developments in the training system, the challenges that are facing healthcare delivery, but also the progress that has been made over the years. The pandemic has inevitably affected life in Malawi, and particularly delivery of healthcare. And we're very keen to learn about your uh, account of this. So without further ado, I'll just start with some questions. And before we talk about COVID-19, during our previous conversation, we discussed about the healthcare burden in Malawi and the increased prevalence of non-communicable diseases with ongoing high prevalence of infectious diseases. Can you both give us an overview of how things have changed over the years and what has had a major impact on these changes, um, in your opinion? Yeah, I'll, I'll let Mike start. Uh, thank you, Anda, for uh, having us back. I think that um, my colleague, uh, Isaac, has been, I think, practicing in Malawi for longer than I have, but I have been in and out of the, the region in, in, in Zambia and South Africa um, with kind of similar burden of diseases, really. The major kind of communicable disease of international concern that we really dealt with um, has been, you know, the HIV, you know, situation. And that's still a you know a big problem in, in a country like Malawi. There's still um, patients getting admitted with the opportunistic infections and they can become sick and they can die. But uh, on the other hand, really has been a tremendous progress um, with an, an illness like that. And in a large part, for instance, when I was uh, in, in Zambia more than a decade ago, treating HIV was an inpatient uh, endeavour. It was uh, looking after people with opportunistic infections, um, unusual forms of meningitis and tuberculosis associated with HIV, severe tuberculosis. That has changed now quite a lot with the sort of progress in uh, the forms of treatment that are now available. It's um, mainly an, an outpatient endeavour. And there's been an awful lot of effort and multidisciplinary effort put into that. I think at the moment it feels it feels that that's an encouraging thing that we had such a, a big obstacle. It affected Edinburgh in a, in a particularly severe way. It infected USA, it infected India and different places, but um, particularly it affected in this region. I think Isaac and I, I'm sure, will, will confirm with the seam of their own eyes that you know, there can be progress with these uh, communicable diseases, with concerted effort, political will, academic endeavours and the work of the, the clinical workforce, it can, it, things can really improve. And that's been my major experience coming to Malawi, uh, sort of decade after I first visited Zambia, progress has been made. What about you, Dr. Chira? And I guess my following question would be, do you think this is, well, it will be linked to antiretroviral therapy, but how does that impact Malawi? You know, I think there's been a, a, a great really change in terms of uh, HIV and TB care, which are a huge burden of, of not only morbidity, but uh, really a huge mortality uh, in those years, the late 90s up to the early 2000s. 
And uh, it wasn't a nice thing to be in the hospital wards because they were full. So I remember those days when I was a houseman, there was, there was a section for uh, the Kapochi sarcoma cases. Uh, we used to admit TB patients then. We used to give them streptomycin, and that would be full of people. Uh, so you go to the surgical unit, you have a lot of Kapochi sarcoma people waiting, dressing of the wounds. And it, it was, I mean, a lot of cryptococcal meningitis. I mean, unfortunately, those days, if somebody came in that state, you knew that, unfortunately, you, you lose them. But, you know, the way things changed, and there's, there's, there's always a not a so nice joke that uh, uh, probably the coffin business was one of the most lucrative business those years. But, you know, with the advent of the antretrovirus, and, and I know we're going to discuss this further down the line, and, and how they got decentralized to be available at every facility, even the smallest of facilities, things just changed. Uh, by change, it's a huge change. It's such that, you know, uh, these days, if you see somebody with really full-blown AIDS, you actually wonder, and, and, and I can say that most of the junior doctors now, they, they would rarely see the extent of disease which was there then. So in terms of HIV, uh, there's been a big, big, big change. But you know, as, as, as you're aware, again, over the same years, now we've seen a huge change increase in the non-communicable diseases. I think it's, it's always questionable whether we're looking for them before or we're not, or maybe we're looking for them now or the, the numbers have just increased. I think that's um, that's another topic altogether. But now we, we, we seem to have dealt pretty well with HIV. As well as TB, there's some good advances, and then we are seeing the uncommunicable diseases. Uh, but what I can just add, because of the, the success in, in the HIV care, there's now some thought, and I know some places, they're sort of uh, integrating HIV and NCD care. So centers which are looking at HIV, because there are some centers which are just specific for HIV and related diseases, they're now stretching their arms and then they are now managing uncommunicable diseases. So we're trying to use the same structures and just to up the NCD care. Very, very interesting. So things have majorly changed. The past 18 months have made a significant impact on many aspects of daily living and I'm sure healthcare delivery as well. How has the pandemic affected Malawi? Uh, so it goes back to the first wave when, when it came in. Uh, the numbers weren't that huge, but then Malawi is a small country and we are in one or the other, know each other or know somebody who knows somebody, that sort of thing. And then when we started hearing the numbers of people dying, it started to scare people. Uh, and then we went through that after a couple of months, one or two, I mean, two or three months. Then we had a good time like anybody else. And then you had the second wave. And I have to look at that is done. But I can I can ascertain from my experience that the first two waves, uh, it was predominantly the urban population who were affected. But then with the third world, which is predominantly Delta strain, uh, we have seen a lot of involvement in the in the rural areas of the country. It, it has taken a, big, a, a huge toll um, uh, in, in most families. So while by numbers we, we didn't have anywhere near as, as high as say, countries like South Africa, considering our size and, and how interrelated we are, a majority of us have been, in a way or the other, been, been if not infected, but, but affected by, by the effects of, of COVID uh, in the last uh, 18 months. Now, to add on to what Isaac said, I mean, I think Isaac mentioned the word fear. I think that's something that has certainly um, come also in waves, you know, really in a way that 
people have sometimes have seen alternated between being fearful of the unknown and having seen you know news and articles and pictures from other places and then maybe heard of relatives or friends passing away with this illness it generated quite a lot of fear obviously and then um, at the same time Malawi was one of the last countries actually to report a case in the world one of the very last um, non-island um, nations to report a case and so there was also a little bit I think of um, sort of disbelief as well and in, in a way we weren't seeing much and we were just um, looking around and so it was really a kind of a mixture of the of these two kind of these two states I think amongst people and then in the rural population it's difficult to know whether people are aware of this at all although I think they are now well, there's kind of been a roller coaster of um, emotions and states of belief interesting so so the first confirmed case as you mentioned was back in April last year so did the government institute any changes like lockdowns what about personal protective equipment how did you cope with the spread of the infection Malawi was quite early on sort of the onset about having restrictions in terms of air travel but at the start there were some precautions there and not not so much now so I think um, control of you know a landlocked country initially that might might have had something to do with the fact it's one of the one of the last countries. The other full lockdowns uh, haven't really been possible in Malawi for a variety of reasons. But nevertheless, there have been population level interventions, closures of schools, alterations to the way people do transport, and certainly there's been um, economic impacts from uh, sort of the, the, these things, which are amongst the most difficult things for Malawi will be the economic impact, I'm sure. So we've had sort of a halfway house, not full lockdowns. There's still been some pretty severe effects in terms of economics, in terms of education, and it's still been pretty hard, even though the, the absolute numbers have not been as high as other countries. And what about the healthcare system? How have hospitals been coping? Isaac, what do you think about your, your I mean, the country yeah. at large? Yeah, so I, I think just just getting back a bit. So, um, I mean, as, 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 as Mike said, in terms of the general control measures, they, they, they had to be uh, legal instruments which were put in place. So the Public Health Act and, and some changes, amendments were made. And then, of course, we had to the public health measures, which, um, you know, there was very slow uptake to start with. It was predominant, as I say, in, in the urban areas, but uh, still remained a big problem in the in the rural areas. And and then we, we have the issue of clinical care, which you're talking about now. So I think initially uh, there were mainly a few centres which were involved in clinical care in terms of admission of COVID-19 patients. And these were predominantly in the, the tertiary centres. So where you had a structure put up, either an old structure, but which was isolated from the main structure. So like you have a, you have a main hospital and then there was a building away from there. And that was modified to be a, a treatment centre. So initially, they were really just the, the central hospitals, but with the second and third wave, when the numbers started increasing, so it's the most, they, they are quite right across the country. And, and that entailed a lot of uh, a lot of the training of medical personnel, which was done really very well, uh, physical as well as virtual training. Uh, I know uh, beginning just after the second wave and before the beginning of the third wave, if I'm not wrong, uh, WHO experts came and, and they... They, they did the uh, physical training of some of the centers which were involved in, in large numbers. There was a lot of training and I've been meetings, I mean, the, a lot of meetings and a lot of protocols, audit collecting forms and 
So, uh, so much has been has been done really when you look over the 18 months and how we started and how things have progressed. There are a lot of guidelines now, how you manage hyperglycemia in, in, in COVID, how you manage TK in COVID, uh, and all those aspects. Now there are, there are guidelines which have been drawn over the 18 months. These are sort of things we didn't have right at the beginning in April uh, last year. So there's been a lot of good good training. And now again, uh, the, in, in supplies, there, there's a lot of issues of, of shortage of, of supplies. And, and they've been collaboration with a lot of bilateral donors in terms of setting up auction plans and ensure that PPEs are available. I think the investment which has been done really in the 18 months in the healthcare, uh, driven by COVID, it's, uh, it, it's huge. So that has happened. But then the collateral damage to that, which uh, I'm sure it's not only for Malawi, but as, as you could understand that when all focused on COVID care and to start with, it's important to understand that you don't have a huge number of healthcare workers in the country. So if you have a huge number of people who were involved in managing of these COVID centers, then obviously the other elements were affected. So obviously you'd cut code surgical cases, other clinics like the NCD clinics will be affected. In terms of HIV care, so patients whose clinic visits would be every three months will be pushed to six months and supply them drug for six months. So uh, some adjustments were, were done, but that could also come with collateral damage for uh, other diseases other than COVID. And now these some of the things which are being discussed on how do we handle this to avoid in case of a fourth wave, how do we avoid this imbalance in focusing on COVID care and overlooking the, the other ailments? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't been practicing that long in Malawi, but six months before the COVID cases started coming here, the essential part of healthcare for me still is people, the human resources, and as Isaac said there, particularly in certain cadres in really short supply, um, Isaac in particular as a sort of specialist, but, you know, people who work in anything like anaesthetics or, or, or critical care, those are very rare people indeed. Initially, I think it was a challenge. There were some fears, we said, and it was a challenge to get people to come to, to the bedside at, the, at these um, emergency treatment units, but, but people did come. And then the same, I think, uh, in the UK, there were unfortunately there were some healthcare workers who contracted and passed on as well, and that's clearly happened in different places in, in in the UK. I know, and it's always sad, but it really um it really is such a scarce, precious resource. You know, experienced healthcare providers that that was really keenly felt here. I've not been back to to Edinburgh, Scotland, or the UK since since it started, but I've seen that there are there are straining resources and PPE and all the rest of it, and that happened here for sure. It was very difficult, you know. There wasn't any rapid tests or lateral flow tests to start with. There was PCR, but that was very scarcely available. So suspects were put in sort of temporary places and sometimes would either be recovered or, or dead by the time the diagnosis was confirmed. So we we had those challenges. The major challenge has been oxygen, really, that that's a, a very scarce resource here. And while we've not had the same magnitude of numbers or mortality as, as what we saw famously in India, you know, in the first and second wave, certainly to a lesser extent, the third wave, these kind of oxygen shortages were causing uh, in a much smaller scale people to, to lose their life where they might have been saved if there was a better uh, oxygen supply. You know, it really stretched the resources to the maximum here. It is interesting because we talked about infectious diseases and TB and, and, and these other transmissible diseases that we, we would have thought that in a country like Malawi, where, where these diseases are still common diseases, that there would be maybe more isolation facilities or, or better design 
of health facilities with IPC in mind, infection prevention control mm -hmm. in mind, and that that's actually not the case. Um, the, there was a lot of you know modifications and emergency buildings having to spring up because the infrastructure and the architecture wasn't suitable. I suspect that some of these are very familiar challenges to the um, people who've been working in COVID in, in, in the UK and in, in the NHS. Um, but there was particular peculiarities in, in, in Malawi, um, which make it slightly different. Yeah, and interesting that you mentioned, um, particularly in the first wave, we also observed that patients avoiding to come into hospital with a rise emergency um, presentation. And there was public health campaigns at the time to advise people to come in if they had symptoms of, say, um, myocardial infarction or a stroke. And you said there was something similar as well you found last year that kind of fear within the population. That was present and it's um, probably during the wave, each wave, we've just passed the third wave, I think people maybe do put off still, um, those who are well informed about COVID probably do still put off things. So you, you were saying that the country is now at the end of the third wave, how is the pandemic affecting Malawi at the moment? Are there still restrictions in place or life is back to some form of normal? So yes, it's so the, the there were restrictions which were lifted I think a week or a week and a few days ago, like uh, how many n numbers of people could meet in any closed environment, etc. Uh, but things like the mask that that still stands, you have to put a mask on. I, I'm just thinking in terms of change of life. Again, uh, it's really individual best because some people really didn't follow measures or. or, or laws. So in some centers, people could still do their own things. But I think what this has done is it has made those who have knowledge and lived in fear when the numbers were high to sort of relax now and go and see their friends. Because I know some people who are not going out to see their friends. I know some places of work, people are basically working from home since March last year. Some people are now going back to work, some in reduced hours, others in like a shift system or rotation system. So the, the things have opened up. It, it really feels a bit a bit gnomish than how it was two months ago when really everyone was in fear. The things have changed a lot. And now with the sun, you can take a walk and, and, and run and enjoy the sun without much fears as you had a few a month or so ago. I think both of us, Isaac, have come from separate planning and trainings about COVID uh, this afternoon, both Ministry of Health things, I think, and basically that um, we're diving right into planning again, uh, which is which I think is a change from when previous waves went over, there was a sort of just a feeling of relax and then it's over. And But now we're really getting to the stage where we, you know, there's a widespread understanding that we're going to be trying to do things that we weren't able to do during the height of the kind of community transmission but planning for the future uh, now, I think that that's pretty intense still, which is good, you know, in terms of how we're adapting to this new situation that we have. Um, there is an ad adaptation uh, there. Thank you very much both for those important insights, both on how healthcare has been affected in the last 18 months, but also generally the country, the population of Malawi has been affected by the pandemic. I'd like to talk a bit about managing the infection, but also vaccination, vaccination programs. So um, to start with, would you be able to give us a run through how a COVID-19 patient admitted to hospital is managed? Yeah, myself, I've, I've only managed them in, in, in Malawi, actually, COVID-19, although in a previous life as a trainee in Edinburgh, we used to test for things like MERS coronavirus. Fortunately, there wasn't any cases. 
a lot of the basics are, will, will be the same as would be um, in Edinburgh, say. We have to sort of identify suspects and there has to be some screening for suspects. Obviously, there's not really anything like um, NHS 24 or any kind of advanced screening and, and even sort of a lot of facilities won't have a telephone line to give advance warning of, of their symptoms. So really that has to be done the front gate of a facility or, or, or the front door. In fact, that's a bit easier said than done because there can be quite large queues to get into facilities early in the morning. So introducing the screening and the early recognition and then um, was an important sort of endeavour, which is probably still not perfectly done, but it is better than it was. In terms of managing, um, I've been fortunate to work in places where there are oxygen supply, which is pretty reliable. Usually our severe cases are you know, hypoxic, the availability of pulse oximeters has gone up dramatically, fortunately, but initially it would sometimes just be a clinical assessment with pulse oximeters being in, in shorter supply. You know, the supportive care at a ward level is broadly similar, although quite a lot of facilities rely on having cylinders filled and being carried back and forth to the patient's which is quite a physical operation, which requires you know a lot of effort and planning as well. You know, I think we were like everyone else, watching keenly and uh, overjoyed when the sort of recovery trial, you know, found that dexamethasone was an effective treatment that could have an impact on mortality. Steroids are commonly available, I think, pretty much worldwide, including Malawi, and dexamethasone has been, and so we've been able to give that kind of you know disease modifying drug pretty much to everyone who needs it. Um, I think where, where it starts to separate a little bit is maybe now we, we read and we see that there are, you know, biological treatments and uh, monoclonal antibodies, which can also impact mortality. And it's very rare for someone to access that here. I think I've had a the odd patient who's been able to go to Kenya to access um, those kind of agents, but on the continent, it's, it's, it's exceedingly rare. So I think uh, in this part of the world, pretty grateful that the the commonly available cheap and um, drugs that are being repurposed possibly for COVID-19, at at least these are being studied. Um, If it were only a case of studying expensive new medicines, then it would be quite uh, difficult to access those. It also diverges when you get to critical patients because critical care is critically low in in, in Malawi and, and, and several other countries around us. Some of the, the institutions were, were able to push to CPAP and um, sometimes high-flow nasal oxygen, but the, it's quite difficult to get the equipment for that even. So when we do see from the UK or, or other countries the very full critical care units and mechanical ventilators, that, that doesn't really exist, those, those large uh, true ICUs um, that have done an awful lot of good work in, uh, in the UK, for instance. Yeah, and I think just to add on, on what uh, Mike has said, you know, he spoke about uh, oxygen and, and the use of oxygen cylinders. A huge chunk of facilities don't have the oxygen plant, so basically the source of, of oxygen is oxygen cylinders, and that's uh, it's a big endeavor. It, it requires a lot of planning and a lot of physical work, moving cylinders from one place to the other. And we, when the numbers were high, uh, we, the biggest problem was running out of oxygen. In, in most centers, there's a lot of multidisciplinary team. There's a lot of physiotherapists who are involved uh, who see the patients along with the doctors during the, the, the ward rounds and, and help with the physio breathing exercises. 
So in terms of the general ward care, as I, as I said, a lot of protocols have been written, but once we would have to escalate to high-level care, then we, we're only limited to our four central hospitals because those are the ones who have the ability to, to give respiratory support beyond something as simple as a CPAP. Uh, I'm not sure in terms of our mortality cases is uh, how much would have been different if we had the ability to escalate care to uh, to high level care than, than what's happening now. That's always an area to to improve on. The use of dexamethasone has made a big difference, and uh, it has really helped a lot. As it's readily available um, throughout the country. It is, it is a big blessing that such a cheap drug would, would help the outcome of the disease. Indeed, we've all been happy and really excited about the recovery uh, trial results um, last year. What about testing? So you did mention at the beginning, uh, firstly, there wasn't access to lateral flow tests, PCR tests. What about now? Do you do have wide access to these tests? Do you rely on them as a screening kind of method? At Chiso, in our you know our, our our reference lab in the long way, they're 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 sequencing like many other countries, but they're sequencing COVID nineteen to figure out what where the predominant strains are now. And I think Isaac can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know historically there's been a huge lag in terms of medical technologies and drugs and so forth reaching somewhere like Malawi. You know. Malawi has these sort of cutting edge technologies now uh, within a few months of other countries. PCR, um, you know, as a a diagnostic method is a fantastic uh, technology for Africa because it doesn't uh, have the same level of technical support required for old fashioned microbiology and virology. So um, and and it's become readily available and the rapid tests, as you say, in sort of um, as a first line um, screening method have become uh, available and so have self-testing methods are are, are starting to come as well. So these things have come pretty quickly, but it it wasn't quickly enough in the first and and, and the start of the second wave. Pretty difficult without these diagnostic methods to sort of figure out which areas patients should go to and um, um, how to separate people appropriately. The other thing that might be different in terms of patient care and working in a a COVID ward in, in Malawi is that the Patients' relatives or, or friends, they're known really as guardians here, play quite a big part in the whole process of being unwell, being in hospital. It's quite normal for patients to have many visitors, for family members to help with the care, to sort of compensate a bit for lower nurse, nursing numbers. And some of the UK, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that there was kind of a restrictive policy in, in, in the UK in terms of um, who was allowed in hospital and so forth. Quite often in facilities, we don't have that level of security or control of the environment. So um, there would be patient relatives coming in. We'd have to try and explain why they shouldn't go to see them, what's wrong, what this new disease is. It caused quite a lot of um, angst, confusion. And um, when it came to transferring patients from a regular ward to a COVID ward or to another hospital, there was a lot of fear about that. So there was a huge amount of communication and interface with relatives I don't know, Isaac. Was that your experience? <laughs> yes, that, that was that was a, that was a big part of the care to let the relatives understand that they can't be part of this in in this case. Uh, however, having said that, there have been protocols drawn for allowing a one guardian. Some of the earlier centres which tried this one is one of the faith best hospital in the long way partners in hope. So they did that successfully, I think, during the first and second world. And it, it sort of eases tension because, you know, there is a belief you're admitted to a COVID care unit and then you die. 
and, and the families are basically in, in, in limbo. So if there's, if there's a relation in there uh, who sort of communicates with them, sometimes it helps to allay the fears. Partners did it pretty well. So there are, are basically guidelines being drawn to try to roll it nationally. Uh, I know that it wasn't fully done during the third wave, but they're still looking into uh, strict measures, how so they, they got to be tested when they're going in, uh, so they don't come out, they stay there, they, they communicate with the people and do everything. So, and then they, I think they sort of sign something and follow a particular protocol. Yes, we, we had to accommodate the cultural aspect of how basically all diseases are managed to avoid stigmatizing COVID, uh, COVID patients. So I'm sure that should it happen that we have another wave soon, uh, most centers, I think, it depends how a center is, is set up. So some centers might follow the, the, the guardian uh, policies which have been set up for the facilities. But yeah, that's, that was another major aspect of, of patient care, really, in, in our setting. One of the interfaces between hospitals and communities, of course, when somebody dies, passes away and there are certain changes that had to occur to the normal funeral practices, which sort of are, are common in the country. And there was um, uh, memorials and different services that had to be delayed and done in a different way. Again, that will be true in UK and in Edinburgh and Scotland and different parts of the world. But I think th- these ceremonies are very, very important in Malawi. So I think that had to be explained and people had to come to terms with that. And um, I don't know just quite how disruptive or how easy that was for people to, to, to change those ways. Uh, what was your experience, Isaac? In Lapan areas, people came to, to, to understand and, and the, uh, the funerals were, were, were being conducted in a different way altogether. The, the numbers were fewer and the time people spent with the families. So it changed. It changed uh, because people, they, they're knowledgeable to an extent and they, and they saw what was happening. Not the case in most of the rural areas, uh, as far as I, I know. Yeah, so you're describing basically adapting to this restrictions, uh, changes, and also, you know, the cultural aspects of that, of living in Malawi. What about the vaccination programme? So, as we said, you know, the last year we've seen some incredible scientific advances and that's been the introduction of the vaccines when did this start in Malawi and how has it been delivered what proportion of the population is vaccinated and what are plans at the moment yeah I think we started in April or June uh, with the AstraZeneca from the India Serum Center then we got ourselves there was a delay in getting our, our second job but we did so initially we had we had the, the AstraZeneca from India and then we had some further donations, I think, from, from the UK, the Johnson's and Johnson's, and I think soon you're going to get the Pfizer. The vaccines, yes, they've been in, but uh, the uptake is very low. I think as of today, probably, I think it's 480,000 totally vaccinated. Uh, in terms of the proportion of the population eligible to get the vaccine, it's very small. Uh, I mean, the 400 is, is the total fully vaccinated. So the, the, the number of first dose about 20,000, the second dose, those full dose of J&J, 200-something thousand. But if you compute all as a fully vaccinated, then it's just it's less than 500,000 for a population of, of 18 million. So you could probably stay eligible for vaccination to probably 9 million or 8. So we are still quite, quite far. And I think a lot of factors come into play and... Uh, I'm not sure if it's just vaccine availability because we, we have vaccines, 
but they're still not the numbers taking it up. So is that a problem with the population engaging or is it the delivery of the vaccine that's affected? Population engaging, uh, really. They have some people of their beliefs, just like anywhere in the world. And uh, I think it's a question of education, education, and, and try to disseminate information to allay the fears. It's not only the rural population, you also see the urban population, quite a significant number of people have been vaccinated. So it's maybe how the, the information has been packaged and what, what fears people have uh, over the vaccine. It's not just availability. So some people say, no, no, we can try to reach out to the rural areas. But you can take the vaccine there, but if the people are not mentally prepared to get it, I, I don't think that will make a difference. And I, I don't think that argument is uh, personal is entirely true. So we, we, we need to inform people more persistence and probably bring in new techniques of how to inform people and see how we can reach people. But by various ways, you, you use the community leaders, you use the church leaders, you use the chiefs and, and try to bring in influential people and then see how, to, how it works. I, I don't think it's purely structural reasons. I, I, I doubt that. Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, what I would say is that Malawi, we talked about the ART program, antiretroviral therapy programs, and there's big success with, with ongoing challenges, but but big success. And another really big public health success in Malawi is the, the sort of pediatric vaccination program. They've been really important and countries like Malawi have helped to reach, you know, millennium development goals because they went from low coverage, vaccine coverage, measles and, and the like, to very high coverage. So it's, it's not really like Malawi is, I don't think, uh, you know, against vaccines, but kind of negative stories have seemed to travel faster than positive stories. I don't know what you think, Isaac. People do have smartphones here, um, certainly urban people and people who have kind of employment and they see videos on, on WhatsApp, which were, you know, made in other countries. And I think whoever makes them are, they have another target audience in mind, I think, but they come over here. And so there's a lot of them um, of this misinformation and fake stories and it just creates doubt and fear, I think. We're fighting that battle here. I know they're fighting it everywhere, really. There seems to be quite a, quite a high penetrance of, of, of these kind of negative messages. But, you know, there's an interesting story, Isaac. I, I, I got told that um, in the, the village close to where I am, the local chief, when um, the AstraZeneca vaccination became available, they didn't rush to it, but they sent two of his um, chosen people from, from his area to have the vaccination. And then, and then he observed them to see what happened. It's a very small kind of study, but I thought this kind of methodology was quite sound to have that, you know, slight caution about something which is new, you know. Uh, you can't wholly be critical about people being a little bit cautious about new things. There have been problems with, in this region, real problems about clinical trials being done and, and, and controversies in the past. So difficult to be too critical. It's just a problem that needs to be engaged with. Obviously, false information needs to be, I think, combated with good messaging from the, using the people that you've described who are, who are trusted people. Certainly, that's, you know, that issue, I think, has been everywhere in the world. Thank you very much. Um, those are very, again, very interesting insights. So the vaccination programme is continuing at the moment. It's ongoing, yeah. But the future is uncertain. I don't know. It, it's um, it's a big challenge. I think we see pledges and I think vaccine doses are one thing, but I, I suspect that there will need to be, you know, vaccination and, you know, they talk about actually having people with vaccine-induced immunity. It's um, human resources, it's communication, it's public messaging, it's engagement just getting transport to areas there's a lot of logistics so 
I think the cold chain, again, there's been, you know, is pretty good now. It needs to be expanded, but it's there. There's a lot of what people would think of as softer things, you know, communication and mm-hmm. education and public engagement. I think that there's a lot that needs to be done there. Uh, but I think they can do it because we talked at the start about um, HIV and we came across the same issues about people saying it didn't exist, that antiretroviral therapy was poison. These things happened in the region, at least, uh, certainly in South Africa. And eventually people came to what we believe is the right, you know, the right conclusions. But the treatment is really overall a very, very, very good thing. Again, that gives a little bit of um, encouragement that we can convince people um, but it's just really, like, can we convince people quickly enough to mm-hmm. make an impact in a good time? And I don't know. I don't know about that. Well, we hope that things continue to improve. So thank you very much to uh, Dr. Chirwa and Dr. McKenzie. We are chatting again, doing a quick update on the progress and development of the pandemic and also the vaccination program um, in Malawi since we last spoke in September. So welcome both again and thank you for your time. I was wondering if you could give us an update on on how are things uh, developing in Malawi over the last few months. So, yeah, vaccine uptake is still quite low nationally. There is a significant increase in the urban areas, but it still remains quite low in the rural areas. If my memory is correct, I think we're probably around 6-7% this month of vaccine uptake. However, there's been a move. The government has announced that uh, now uh, 12 to 18 awards will also get vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, and we're yet to hear how this program will, will roll out. Uh, again, there's issue of, of poster vaccine. I think that was discussed again. But currently, the stance is uh, let's try to vaccinate as many people as possible before we talk of booster vaccines. So I, I think the issue of a booster vaccine will probably be looked into again, uh, maybe next year, depending on how things unfold. So vaccines uptake is still quite low. And, and obviously, then that brings in the concern of uh, what the impact might be with, with Omicron. So yes, officially, we're in a fourth wave now. I uh, started a few weeks ago. Numbers going up. I think uh, this week, Sunday or Monday, the, the, the positivity rate was about 14%. But currently, really, we're not seeing the, 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 the level of admissions we're seeing in the third world. In terms of how much of our cases are Omicron, uh, that, that I would not say, but we know that officially uh, we, we had Omicron cases. Uh, we're just told uh, these are samples which were taken between 11th of November and 2nd of December, and sequencing was done locally. So we know that, yes, there is Omicron, but uh, we haven't had any results of further sequencing. But currently, really, yes, we are seeing cases uh, every day, but none are worrying to require admission. So we keep fingers crossed that it remains that way. Okay. Um, yes, uh, and, um, and I agree when I to talk again. I think uh, at the moment we're uh, at a, an uncertain moment still. What I've seen in Malawi is that we have some people who are very, very enthusiastic to get vaccines. And you get a lot of inquiries about where to get a vaccine, where to get a particular vaccine, when can a second or additional third dose be given. And that, that tends to be, as Isaac said, from the kind of people who are living in urban areas who one you know, might assume really have very high level of education and, and, and access to lots of different information sources, whether it be media, internet, or even speaking to people who may be a healthcare professional professionals or have some level of knowledge. Um, and then we sort of contrast that again with the, the kind of national outlook where the percentage of people who've been vaccinated is very low. And I guess that that may well tie in with the rurality of, of Malawi, that around 80% of the country's the rural population. And often that means less exposure to 
you know, accurate or, or what we'd say is sort of quality checked sources of information. We think that leaves the country vulnerable to the different variants, including the new variant, where it seems at the moment to be very important. Be really fully vaccinated in, in the old terminology with, say, two doses of AstraZeneca, but maybe even to have an additional dose. You know, Malawi is still vulnerable to coronavirus, to COVID-19. And I think we're still uncertain in terms of, we, you know, we always look to South Africa in this region to see what's going to happen. And I think the whole world is now looking at South Africa to see what's going to happen. We're talking now on Monday, the 14th of December, 2021. We hear that there are less admissions in hospital at the moment. We hear that there are less deaths than previous waves. But I think maybe it still will be a week or two before we can truly judge that. So really, I think all of us who work in the health kind of sector uh, are really tuned in to what's going on in South Africa and the region, and I think the whole world is as well. Yeah, certainly right. So thank you for alluding to that. As, as you say, the Omicron variant, which has been classed as a variant of concern, has been first detected at the end of November in specimens in Botswana and South Africa. And indeed, the whole world has been awaiting cautiously information from that part of the world to see how things are developing. So how how are things developing, particularly in Malawi? You're saying you've detected a few cases. You haven't yet seen or are waiting to see the effects of that on hospitalization, healthcare resources. What are your um, predictions? As Mike has said, I think most of us are watching closely uh, what's happening in South Africa. What we expect is that we probably don't have bigger numbers than, than the third wave because we think that it's, it's predominantly the Omicron than we, so far, what we know is that the transmissibility is very high. So therefore, we expect higher numbers, but we're hoping that the higher numbers won't translate into choking of the health sector, that they will require more admissions, more ventilatory support, things like those. So it's just to watch closely, but preparations on the ground and each team and each center is looking at if need arises, how can we escalate, how many people we can check in. So there are preparations on, on the ground taking place, but keeping eyes and ears close on the ground, especially watching South Africa. As I said, there's, there has been preparations, whether it be dealing with Delta variant or the new variant. Preparations have continued. There's been quite a lot of effort into nationwide training, including the, the rural treatment centres. So we would hope that that part at least is strengthened. If the vaccine has not yet been quite carried around the country uh, or up, the uptake has been lower, um, we would hope that the healthcare workers are, are better prepared than ever before for the COVID-19 um, uh, wave. And when I kind of uh, reflect on that, I think that it's another example, I think, of having just generally a strong healthcare system. The sort of bottom line would be that if that that's what will help someone who becomes sick with COVID-19 if they become a, a severe or critical case is that they have a kind of hospital to go to which can, you know, help them uh, with oxygen, with the treatment, such as the standard of care here. And there's been different things in the, you know, you know, I guess, debates or investigations to do with the more sophisticated um, monoclonal antibody style treatments for COVID-19 and whether they work with the new variants. In the, you know, in the African region, we're, we're, we're looking still at the same kind of treatments, oxygen, CPAP, which, is, which has been introduced, steroids and good general care and supportive care with infection prevention control. Those things, I think, have been strengthened. And, and the, in that sense, we hope that Malawi will be better prepared for this fourth wave, which has just clearly been a small uptake in the last few days. So we, we hope and we pray for that we are better prepared, but it remains to be seen. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving us that live overview and update. And thank you again for your time. And we should all the very best.